Hey, hey future, future medics. medics. I'm Anne. And I'm Josh B. And this is our long-awaited second episode. And don't worry, guys, we'll post a lot more frequently now. In the previous episode, we had a special guest, Dr. Lavinia, and she talked about the infectious disease field. As a continuation of that discussion, we wanted to share with you guys our research about two prevalent infectious diseases in the medical field. And no, it's not COVID. Okay, and also, as usual, before we start, make sure you subscribe to our podcast on all platforms, which are Spotify and YouTube. And finally, follow our Instagram, because that's our way that we're going to be able to interact with you guys. And with that out of the way, I'm going to hand it over to Anne so that she can talk about monkeypox. Okay, so unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard all the craze about monkeypox in the past few months. But before we discuss monkeypox, I wanted to give you guys a little background on viruses themselves. So when we think of viruses, I feel like most people usually think of like the COVID-19 shaped beings that just attack the body rapidly. But do you truly understand what a virus is? So generically, viruses are non-living microscopic complex molecules that contain DNA wrapped in a protein coat. So it's DNA and then a protein coat wrapped around. So in our current biology class, our unit was centered around a main question. How did life form? So as I was researching a little about viruses, I thought about the same question in the context of viruses. How slash when did viruses form? So scientists try to trace back the existence of viruses, but not really in the way that you'd expect. Viruses are way too small to be fossilized or preserved in a rock for millions of years. So instead, we have to look at the genomes, but not the genomes of the viruses, because they mutate way too fast that even after just hundreds of years, the original genome of a virus is barely left. So guess what we have to look at? Mm, is it is it like the genome of... Wait, is it the genome of like someone that's infected? Yeah, human genome. Okay, so like okay. basically, because like everyone gets viruses at some point, right? So just like the human genome. So after the virus injects the host cell with its DNA, the genome of the virus might become integrated into the host cell if it doesn't leave any substantial harm or damage to the host cell. So that genomic code inside the host cell can stay for a really long time since our cells don't mutate as often as viruses do. Wait, how do you know which like type of cell to look at? Okay, that's what I'm going to get to. So specifically, yeah. you have to look at cells that pass down like eggs or sperm. So these are where the mutations will be passed down. And okay. that's like the fossil that we have for viruses. And so with this method, we found evidence that shows viruses to exist hundreds of millions of years ago, but that's not close enough to where we presume that it was created, which is billions of years ago. So therefore, we developed three main hypotheses on how it was formed. The first is the regressive hypothesis, which was inspired by the discovery of the Mimi virus, which was a really weird virus because it was relatively a huge virus and it had many more genes compared to a normal virus. And these genes could even make proteins, which viruses don't normally do. So where were all these genes coming from? It was hypothesized that these viruses were once actually small cells that would interact with larger cells. And the relationship between these two cells were originally symbiotic, but then it became parasitic over time, with the small virus cells being the predator. So over time, the components or genes that were not required by the tiny virus cell due to their parasitism those components were lost. And this is supported by like bacteria such as rickettsia and chlamydia, which are living cells that only can reproduce inside host cells, just like viruses. And these organisms support this hypothesis because 
their dependence on parasitism is probably what caused them to lose their genes that would allow them to prosper out of the cell, which is exactly what this hypothesis states about viruses. The second hypothesis is the cellular origin hypothesis, which is that viruses evolved from DNA that escaped from genes of a larger organism. So this escaped DNA could have come from plasmids, which are pieces of naked DNA that can move between cells, or transposins, which are molecules of DNA that replicate and move around to different positions within the gene of the cell. So basically any component that just kind of moves around and can slip out, right? So Mm -hmm. this escaped DNA would then make itself a protein coat. And now that you have DNA in a protein coat, that's basically a virus. And the final hypothesis is the virus first hypothesis, which basically just states that viruses came before cellular life. And the simple explanation for this is just because viruses are way simpler than cellular life. And this is supported by the idea that all viral genomes encode proteins that do not have cellular homologs. So looking at these functions of viruses, you might be tempted to say it's living. And until I researched this, I thought that viruses were living too. And I don't know if you caught in the beginning, but I did mention that viruses were non-living. So the reasoning for this is that although they can evolve and reproduce, they can't reproduce without their host cell, right? And even Mm -hmm. if they can evolve, They're more like programs than living organisms. Like any of their evolutions are usually just from random mutations, not really that they're adapting to their environment, right? And they also can't use energy or respond to their internal environment. So for these reasons, most scientists agree that viruses aren't living. So how do viruses enter a cell? So viruses are actually like two-faced, fake, backstabbing cells. (laughs) So their receptors basically attach to the cell membrane of a cell. So cell membranes are semi-permeable, meaning they're going to let some stuff in and they don't let other things in. And so when the receptor proteins of the viruses attach, they actually look like nutrients that the cell needs. So the membrane allows it to come in. The second they enter through the membrane, either through endocytosis or penetration, they immediately start their track. You said that they look like nutrients that the cell needs. Do you think this is kind of like an evolutionary thing or were they just like they were made and they look like nutrients? Actually don't know. That's a good question. But I feel like as I was discussing earlier, most of their adaptations are just random mutations. Mm. So like whatever ends up surviving ends up surviving. So maybe it was kind of like that. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Like kind of like the survival of the fittest. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they immediately start their attack, they uncoat the proteins, and then they release the DNA into the nucleus, which basically hijacks the cell to follow whatever the virus's DNA orders are instead of their normal function. So now the virus is forcing the cell to reproduce the virus without its consent. Like, what the heck? Yeah, what the heck? Okay. Okay, and I know the point of the video isn't super center around this but I just want to talk about this because I thought it was really cool the way our bodies recognize viruses and protect us is like literally insane so when the virus enters and it releases its protein coat the cell realizes that they just let like a backstab in right so immediately the enzymes start killing the virus and they send so once they kill the virus they send a chunk of that virus out to the other cells to like warn them and they send them specifically to b cells because they're the ones who are going to fight back so these b cells are going to create antibodies or proteins that will attack the virus so our dna has a special code for making these antibodies which the enzymes find in the nucleus of the b cell and this special code is messenger rna so the messenger rna is translate to create protein through several structures and this is actually what we discuss in biology so first it'll go through the ribosome which will read the code and link the necessary amino acids. 
then the ribosome is connected to the ER. So once these structures complete its protein creation, it's going to be sent to the Golgi apparatus to be packaged in a vesicle that resembles a cell membrane so it can easily pass out of the cell membrane through fusion. Okay, I feel like I have like a whole analogy for this. Like I was thinking okay. about it, I was like, wait. So it's like the virus is like the backstabber, right? And then mm-hmm. and then the like main part of the cell is like the person that the virus is like backstabbing. And then everything else, like everything else that like, goes and like bites it off are like all the yeah. friends. Yeah. Oh my god, yeah. that's okay. I was literally <laughs> watching a video and that's exactly how they displayed the animation. Really? It was so cool. It was like no an way. army. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Joshi. Okay, so now that I've given you probably a bunch of unnecessary information on viruses, let's actually discuss the dreaded monkeypox virus. So as an overview, monkeypox is caused by the monkeypox virus, which is a member of the orthopox genus in the family Poxviridae. So orthopox viruses are oval-shaped viruses, which are in the same family as cowpox, chickenpox, joshviepox. Hey, can you laugh? (laughs) <laughs> thanks no, um, no, it actually wasn't that funny okay shut up <laughs> okay. monkeypox is a viral zoonosis which it means it's a virus transmitted from two humans from animals as smallpox died down in 1980 then monkeypox began emerging as the most important orthopox virus for public health and monkeypox primarily occurs in central and west africa often near like tropical rainforests and it's been increasingly occurring in urban areas as we've seen. So wait, so has monkeypox been around since the 1980s or is it like, and it's just starting to pick up steam or is it, it was created recently? It started around like 1980s of like Uh, after that because as smallpox went down, then monkeypox went up. Okay. And and then now it's just recently been like infected. Yeah, recently. Like it's always been bad in Central and West Africa. But like, as I'm going to talk about later, there was like some transmission that made it just really spread to US and then other urban areas, which is when it began to pick up attention. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. So the original animal hosts include rope squirrels, tree squirrels, Gambian pouch rats, dormice, non-human primates and other species. Um, But there's a lot of uncertainty on like the natural history of the monkeypox virus. But this is like the closest we found. And much of the information and treatment of monkeypox revolves around smallpox because they're so similar in the same family. Um, So then the pathogen, which is the monkeypox virus, is an envelope double-stranded DNA that belongs to the orthopox genus of the pox veridae family, as I've stated. And there are two distinct genetic clades of the monkeypox virus. One is the Central African or Congo Basin clade, and the other is the West African. African clade. Clades are used to describe groups of similar viruses based on their genomic sequence. So the Congo Basin clade has historically caused a lot more severe damage and was thought to be more transmissible. Um, And the geographic division between the two clades so far has been in Cameroon, which is the only country where both virus clades have been found. So the first outbreak of monkeypox in humans was identified in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in a nine-month-old boy in a region where smallpox was just eliminated in 1968, two years prior. So since then, most cases have been reported from like rural rainforest regions of the Congo Basin, and human cases have increasingly been reported from across Central and West Africa. And now we know monkeypox like this huge thing among urban areas, and that really became a disease of global public health importance in 2003, which is when 
the first monkeypox outbreak outside of Africa occurred in the U.S. And this case was linked to contact with, guess what? No. (laughs) Infected prairie dogs. Literally so random. (laughs) These pets were like housed with Gambian pouch rats and dormice, which were imported from Ghana. So that's how they think that they got infected, just by like animal importation. Yeah. So this outbreak led to over 70 cases of monkeypox in the U.S., and monkeypox has also been reported in travelers from Nigeria to Israel to the United Kingdom to Singapore and to the U.S. So it's and, like all um, over the world. It's not yeah. just. Okay. Yeah. And um, a notable case was in May 22, where there were multiple cases of monkeypox identified in non-endemic countries, which are countries that have like no link to the virus whatsoever. Okay. So these are just Wait, random. So the disease that I'm going to be talking about, there's some countries where it's like more prevalent. Are there countries like that or is it like right now it's just every country is? Definitely it's more prevalent in like Central and West Africa. Like I mentioned earlier, like the rainforest regions because that's where they originated. Yeah. Usually like the other outbreaks are just from some sort of like transmission across. Okay. So it's yeah. not as bad there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So for animal to human transmission, it usually occurs from direct contact with the blood, bodily fluids or skin, nose and mouth of infected animals. And for human-to-human transmission, it usually results from close contact with, like, respiratory secretions or skin lesions of an infected person or recently contaminated objects. And transmission through droplet respiratory particles usually require a prolonged face-to-face contact, which puts health workers, household members, and any other close contact of infected people at a greater risk. Mm -hmm. And the longest documented chain of transmission in a community has risen in the recent years from six to nine consecutive person-to-person infections. And this shows that there is a declining immunity of people because not as many people are getting the smallpox vaccination anymore. And transmission can also occur from the mother to fetus or during close contact during and after birth. Because yeah. I know my parents have like a smallpox vaccine because yeah. you can see like the scars. Yeah, my parents yeah. have it too. It's so like prevalent. You can see <laughs> it. So is it like they're immune to monkeypox or can they still get it? They can still get it. I think the statistic was it's like around 80% effective, okay. the vaccine. I mean, like either way, vaccines aren't always effective itself. Yeah. But yeah. So while physical contact is a well-known risk factor for transmission, as I've said, it's not really clear whether monkeypox can be transmitted through sexual transmission yet. So for the symptoms of monkeypox, it can be split into a few periods. So first we have the incubation period, right, which is the time from infection to actually experiencing the symptoms. Mm -hmm. And this is usually like six to 13 days, but it can range from 15 to 21 days. And then the actual infection can be divided into two periods. First, we have the invasion period, which can last between zero to five days. And this is characterized by fever, intense headache, swelling of lymph nodes, back pain, muscle aches, and intense asthenia. And lymphadenopathy, which is the swelling of lymph nodes, is a distinct feature of monkeypox compared to other diseases that can appear similar initially, like chickenpox, measles, smallpox. And the skin eruption usually begins, which is the second period, usually begins one to three days after the appearance of fever. And this is where all like the bumps all over start appearing, right? So it can affect the face in 95% of cases. It affects the palm of the hands and soles of feet. In 75% of cases, it affects oral mucous membranes or the skin inside of your mouth. In 70% of cases, it affects the genitalia in 30%. 
and conjunctive, which is the lining around your eye in 20% of cases, as well as the cornea. And a lot of people were worried that monkeypox can blind you, but monkeypox infections that lead to decreased vision or blindness are really rare. But mm -hmm. if an infection does spread to the eye and cause corneal scarring, it can be possible to have those symptoms. In terms of the rash itself, it goes through like a few stages. So first it starts out as a macule, which is just a lesion with a flat base. And then it goes to a papule, which is a slightly raised firm lesion. And then it goes to a vesicle, which is a lesion filled with clear fluid. And then it goes to a pustule, which is a lesion filled with yellowish fluid. And then it finally crusts up and dries and falls off. Really cute, right? Yeah, like a pimple. Yeah. <laughs> and the number of lesions that one can have can vary from like a few to a several thousand. And in severe cases, lesions can actually combine until like large sections of the skin fall off. Mm -hmm. And most severe cases are actually among children. And also people with obviously like underlying immune deficiencies can also have worse outcomes. And people that are younger than 50 are usually less immune to this disease because again, they have a lower chance of actually having the smallpox vaccine. Mm -hmm. And a few complications of monkeypox can include secondary infections, bronchopneumonia, which is a type of pneumonia that causes inflammation in the alveoli, which is a small air sac in the lungs that allows rapid gaseous exchange, sepsis, which is when the chemicals that release into the bloodstream to fight the infection instead cause inflammation, also encephalitis, which is inflammation of the brain due to infection in this case, and again, infection of the cornea with ensuing loss of vision. And the case fatality ratio of monkeypox has ranged from 0 to 11% in the general population and is obviously higher among young children. But mm -hmm. in more recent times, the ratio has been around 3 to 6%. Okay. So now we're getting to like all the therapeutics. So what can we do to treat monkeypox? So a common one is an antiviral agent known as tecoviramat, which was originally developed for smallpox and was improved by the European Medicines Agency for monkeypox in 2020. So it's not yet widely available mm -hmm. and it's approved by the FDA for smallpox, but not for monkeypox. So okay. tecoviramet works by inhibiting the function of a major envelope protein, BP37, which is required for the production of an extracellular virus. So basically this prevents the virus from leaving the infected cell and spreading further. You know, that reproduction part I was talking about where the virus takes over the cell and makes it reproduce more and more and spread like that. So basically, yeah. this virus will inhibit that function. Okay, so then, it'll only remain in like that one spot. Yeah, okay. It's well, that's what it's supposed to do. It's not like a hundred percent efficient, but like okay, if it just remains in that one spot, what would they do to like get the virus to just leave that one spot? You know how I said, how does the virus fight off the body? It usually sends enzymes oh, to right, kill right. the virus and all that. Yeah. yeah, ideally that's what would happen. But the drug wouldn't have 100% efficiency. So I feel like it would still spread to some extent and keep going. Yeah. But yeah. And then there's another antiviral drug that's used to treat smallpox known as brine cytofovir. Sorry, it originally used to treat smallpox, but it can also be used to treat monkeypox. There's not actually any data available to show the effectiveness of this drug in treating the monkeypox. However, it has been shown to be effective against orthopox viruses in vitro and in animal studies. So this drug works by inhibiting DNA synthesis by incorporation of cytofluvir diphosphate into the growing DNA strand. So in simple terms, the virus can't spread because the DNA is inhibited, basically like the last one. Okay. And the next treatment for potential infections 
This is actually preventing infections from the smallpox vaccine and not the virus itself. So vaccinia is used in smallpox vaccines because it's a less harmful pox virus and that can cause infections. So the vaccinia immune globulin is made from the blood of people inoculated with the vaccine, which are purified and isolated to contain the antibodies the individuals developed in response to the vaccina from the vaccine. So now that we're talking about vaccines, what are some vaccines that we can use to treat monkeypox? So obviously the most common one would just be vaccination against smallpox. It's around 85% effective in preventing monkeypox. So having the smallpox vaccination will result in milder illness. And there's also a newer vaccine, JYNNEOS, which is based on a modified attenuated vaccinia virus, which I just discussed earlier, or the Ankara stain. And this was approved for monkeypox in 2019. And this is a two-dose vaccine for ages 18 plus under high risk of monkeypox. So what can you do to reduce risk of human-to-human transmission? Obviously, avoid close contact with the infected person because that's the most significant risk factor for monkeypox virus infection. And since health workers and household members are put at a greater risk of infection, it's better to have persons previously vaccinated against smallpox to care for these patients. And there are a lot of loopholes and questions that remain on how exactly monkeypox spreads. Like I said earlier, we don't really know if it spreads through sexual transmissions, things like that. Mm-hmm. And another big case was um, the May 22 thing, which I talked about, where there were just clusters of random cases mm-hmm. in non-endemic countries with no travel links from any endemic area. To reduce risk of zoonotic transmission, this should be obvious. Obviously, just avoid contact with wild animals, especially any that are sick or dead, and um, avoid touching their meat, blood, and other parts. And then obviously cook all food contaminate, containing animals or meat parts thoroughly. So finally, the last unique way I researched about preventing monkeypox is restricting animal trade. This seems really random, but considering how all the infections in the U.S. started through like pet prairie dogs, it makes sense why this is important. Mm-hmm. So some countries have put in place regulations which restrict the importation of rodents and non-human primates. And any captive animals that are potentially infected with monkeypox have to be isolated from other animals and immediately placed into quarantine. And even any animals that might have come into contact with an infected animal should also be quarantined and handled with the standard precautions and observed for symptoms for 30 days. So, yeah. Okay, cool. That's actually kind of interesting. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, now I am going to be talking about an infection and this infection it's not as recent as like other infectious diseases like covid and obviously monkeypox but the disease that i'm talking about is called tuberculosis and it's like a little bit older right so whenever people say oh yeah i got covid or oh yeah i got monkeypox it's kind of like more panic deal, yeah. yeah there's like more panic attached to it than if someone were to say oh yeah i have tuberculosis like they're all still like equally dangerous And so I feel like a lot of diseases are being, like, kind of, like, hidden because of, like, these new, like, it's kind of, like, new shiny, like, toys. It's, like, they're being, Mm -hmm. like, all the old ones are being, like, thrown away. So, like, that's why I chose tuberculosis because I feel like it's still important that we, like, talk about. Yeah. So first I'm going to be talking about some background about tuberculosis. And by the way, sometimes I might say TB instead of tuberculosis, but TB is just short for tuberculosis. Okay. 
So obviously, like I mentioned, TB is one of the most prevalent infectious diseases. And so this is like kind of different than a lot of other infectious diseases like monkeypox, like Anne was talking about, because this is caused by a bacterial infection. And so bacterial infections are caused when um, a certain like bad bacteria gets into the body somehow either through like inhaling the bacteria through the air or maybe like it can go through like open wounds and stuff like that. So like somehow it gets into the body and then it starts growing. And because this bacteria isn't really supposed to be in the human body, it has like a negative reaction with the human body. And it can start creating symptoms and then obviously like creates the disease. Um, so in this case, bacteria that's being inhaled is called I barely know how to pronounce it. <laughs> it's, okay. it's called Mycobacterium tuberculosis. And that's mm-hmm. probably where the name come, came from. Because it's like, wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so in TB's case, like the bacteria is inhaled. Okay, so the bacteria of TB, it's like in your lungs. Mm-hmm. So when someone like coughs or sneezes, the bacteria leaves your lungs and like spreads through the air. And then a non-infected person will breathe that air in, kind of like COVID. A non-infected person will breathe the air in, and then that bacteria that they breathe in, it goes into their lungs, and it settles in their lungs, and then it starts growing, and then obviously, like, creating the symptoms. Tuberculosis is different because there's two different types of tuberculosis, right? So this is how tuberculosis starts. When the bacteria inhaled and it settles in your lungs, the immune system is stronger than the bacteria. So it's able to like settle the bacteria down. Basically, the bacteria is kind of like asleep. It's not active. Mm-hmm. So when this happens, the person who, who's infected, they have latent tuberculosis. So okay. when a person has latent tuberculosis, the bacteria is not active. It's not growing. It's just there. So like <laughs> latent tuberculosis, there's no symptoms, no side effects, and you can't even transmit it to another person. Okay. That's so kind of like the bacteria is there, but it's not really doing anything. So will it ever like like die or go away or does it kind of just sit there? It just sits there unless something else happens. And this oh. is this okay, is like okay. sometimes when the immune system gets a little weak or the bacteria gets a, too strong for the immune system to control, the bacteria will become active again and start growing. And oh. this is called active tuberculosis, and that's when the symptoms start showing, and that's when you're able to transmit it to another person. So this is when it becomes like dangerous. Mm -hmm. Obviously because of like your immune system not being able to fight it off, this mostly occurs in people who have a weakened immune system. So maybe people that are older or like people with diseases like lupus. So when it's in latent tuberculosis, is the body like working to keep the bacteria asleep or is it just naturally like that? Um, I don't know. I'm actually not sure, but I think it's that the body... Because when, when it becomes active, it's because the body... Can't, like the, yeah. the bacteria gets too strong for the body to keep right. it. So I think it's because it's stronger than the bacteria. Right. Okay. So then once symptoms start to show, it's important to get it treated as fast as possible before it like starts spreading and becomes fatal. Um, and this is especially important if obviously, like I mentioned, you have a weak immune system. Because then, like, your body can't fight it off as well as another person could. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, also, sorry, I should have mentioned this before, but anyone can get active tuberculosis, but it's just more common for people with weakened immune systems. Mm, Okay. Um, Okay, and so some of the symptoms are, like, 
you have a bad cough for at least three weeks or longer, there's a pain in your chest, you start coughing up blood or sputum, and then, uh, I might have said that wrong, I don't know, <laughs> second, it, or, okay, not second, I don't know what number it is, but you're, like, <laughs> you're, like, weakened or you're, like, fatigued, uh, you have, like, weight loss because you lose your appetite, and then, obviously, like, chills and fevers. So for latent tuberculosis, how would you get it? If somebody's not like coughing up their active bacteria to you, how would you get bacteria inhaled that's just dormant? They cough up active bacteria and then you inhale it and then it's your immune system is stronger than the bacteria. So it's oh, able to, like, right. Okay. okay, so tuberculosis occurs a lot in low and middle income countries like Bangladesh, Indonesia, South Africa, India, and a bunch of like other countries like that. Like, that's why, like, if you're, like, traveling to a country like that, um, your doctor will give you a tuberculosis shot, and the shot kind of acts, it's kind of like a flu shot, where they insert pathogens that are less dangerous into your body, and so then your immune system can, like, kind of get used to it. So in case, you like, you actually inhale the bacteria, your immune system is more ready. So it's even more important to go get checked out if you went to one of these countries and you experienced symptoms. There's two main ways that doctors are able to diagnose tuberculosis. And so I kind of don't really understand this much, this part as much. So, it's okay. <laughs> so the two ways are called a skin test and a blood test. And both of them measure your immune system's response to an antigen taken from the bacteria. And what an antigen is, it's a foreign substance that creates a response from the immune system. So basically, they take something that's part of the bacteria, which in this case, it's a protein. And I'll get into that later. So they take something that's part of the bacteria, but it's not dangerous. And they kind of like put it in to see how your body reacts to it. And based on its reaction, they figure out, okay, do you have tuberculosis or do you not have tuberculosis? Oh, okay. Um, so usually if you're going to get tested for tuberculosis, the first thing they'll do is give you a skin test. And so this is when they inject a small amount of PPD with a tiny needle into your inner arm. And a PPD is a protein from the tuberculosis bacteria. And because it's not like, because it's not the live bacteria. It doesn't give you symptoms, but your body still has the same response to that protein. And like, Mm-hmm. You don't have tuberculosis. Oh, wait, I think I figured. Okay, wait, I think I, I understand this now. Like, I figured it out. <laughs> okay. So, basically, you may have tuberculosis if there's firm swelling and redness at that site. So, obviously, if you insert protein and that's the bacteria's food, they're going to mm-hmm. go to that location and try and t- attach itself to it, right? So, it's going to create oh. a reaction with the body. So, that's what oh. the swelling is. And so, but if there's no swelling, like, there's no bacteria that meets the protein. Oh my, you're so smart, bro. No, I literally like, just figured this out. <laughs> <laughs> and so then after, like, okay, so now the doctors are like, okay, you may have tuberculosis and you may not have tuberculosis. So then what they do is they conduct a blood test. And this is like a normal blood test where they just like draw a little bit of blood and they send the blood over to the lab to get like lab work done. Mm-hmm. And so um, it tells you, okay, do you have the tuberculosis bacteria in your bloodstream or not? And so if you have tuberculosis bacteria in your bloodstream, um, the problem with this type of test is that you don't know if it's latent tuberculosis or active tuberculosis because they're both still like the same bacteria, right? right. Um, so then after what needs to be done is they need to take a chest x-ray of your lungs and see 
if the bacteria is um is growing and spreading or if it's just inactive and asleep right okay so with that all out of the way i'm gonna go into a recent research that has been done about tuberculosis that i thought was kind of interesting in the very early forms of tuberculosis the bacteria is able to leave your lungs and go to your bones went to your yeah i know it's so scary like went to to your bones it would like break it down what the heck yeah i know and like this type of tuberculosis is literally like fatal like like once it gets to your bones it's like okay you're done is is like normal tuberculosis fatal or is it usually treatable um i i'm not 100 percent sure i think it's it's mostly treatable okay like i don't think it's that fatal Mm. but um anyways this type of tuberculosis it's not it like it was so ancient that it was literally found in like egyptian mummies what (laughs) i know and but it's not that relevant now because it's only like two percent of people actually have this type of tuberculosis um however there was a recent outbreak right okay maybe Mm -hmm. not recent i don't (laughs) like not recent (laughs) like 2022 but it's like recent as in like maybe like 10 12 to 10 years ago right so basically this guy from he okay i don't know if it's a guy it's like a person (laughs) he went to vietnam i think for a business trip or something and Mm -hmm. um he came back and he got the tuberculosis infection which is something i was saying in the beginning if you go to these countries it's important to get like vaccinated and you know just to double check and because he didn't check after he came back and he didn't get vaccinated. What the heck? If he watched Josh's podcast, she, he would actually know. Literally. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> but because of that, he like it spread to a lot of his families. And he lives in North Carolina, by the way. So this outbreak was in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And that's not really important. But <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Like this outbreak was like the b- outbreak that like 60% of the people that were infected by this tuberculosis by mm-hmm. the guy that spread it, um, their uh, it all like reached to their bones and started breaking that down. Oh and obviously like 66%, remember I mentioned before, it's like 2% was like right. how much it's, it is now. So like obviously 66% is so much more than 2%. Right. So some like two researchers named Jason Stout and David Tobin, they thought this was so unusual. So they started, they worked together to try and like create an explanation for this. Mm-hmm. And so what they did is they examined the, um, the patient's samples of like the patients that were infected. Um, and just some background, because it's important for you to understand, there's 255 strains of tuberculosis. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, but they found out that the tuberculosis produced by the the people in North Carolina, yeah, um, it was lineage one, so strain one tuberculosis, Mm -hmm. and this strain is one of the earliest forms of TB to emerge, Mm -hmm. which makes sense obviously because like only the early one reach your bones, and so they decided to check the composition of the strain compared to other strains. Wait, what is the strain? Is that like a part of the bacteria or? So you know how like there's different, like you mentioned, there was two different types of, um, of what's it called, monkeypox? Right. 
kind of like that like it's just like a mutation oh. that keeps that keep occurring occurring until it's like oh so is it like ch- like modifications in the bacteria cause differences in tuberculosis or yeah okay okay so they compared this tuberculosis of like the people that were infected and they compared it to, to like more recent tuberculosis <laughs> i feel like that wasn't the right word <laughs> that's not a word <laughs> <laughs> but um so they found that there's a gene that codes for a protein in and this gene is called ESXM mm-hmm. and this gene is only present in the strain one okay and it's not present in modern strains of tuberculosis mm-hmm. so what this suggests is that okay maybe it's the ESXM gene that's causing the bacteria to to be able to leave the lungs and reach the bones so is the ex the exsm gene in like people's bodies or is it something that comes when you get tuberculosis i think it's a gene that's in the bacteria okay um okay so this esxm gene um so to confirm that this esxm gene is the is the gene that's causing their tuberculosis to be able to leave their lungs and reach the bones. They took the TB samples of the people in North Carolina. That's tuberculosis that reached their bones. Mm-hmm. They inserted that into zebrafish, and then they took samples of people whose tuberculosis just stayed in their lungs, mm-hmm. and they infect they infected that to another group of zebrafish. Okay, and so they compared how far the tuberculosis bacteria was able to spread in the two different groups of zebrafish. And they found that on average, the zebrafish with ESXM gene was Mm -hmm. able to travel two times as much as a tuberculosis without that gene. Oh my God. I know, like double the amount. And then to further prove their claim, the researchers also sequenced 3,236 different strains and they found that all the modern strains had no ESXM gene. Mm. Um, and so, yeah. So the ESXM gene was like the one responsible for the bone. For reaching bones, yeah. Oh my god. Okay, That's so cool. this seems like it's okay. Like this seems like it's a positive thing. But um, in the same article, the researchers um, were talking about a possible downside to this. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, now that the the tuberculosis can only stay in your lungs, um, that if that's the only place that it can spread to, then it's going to cause a more drastic effect on right. your lungs than the earlier mm-hmm. strains. But obviously, like they haven't tested this out yet; they haven't like researched it yet. So, um, like so- whether it's more drastic on the lungs? Yeah. Oh, okay. So they haven't researched it yet. Um, but obviously, like if for like the listeners and everyone, if this is something you want to like learn more about, I can like keep checking on it, and then maybe if like they ever do research it, then maybe like I can mention it in an episode. Yeah, you guys should do research on what Joshby said, like whether the tuberculosis that's only in the lungs is more damaging. Let yeah. us know, guys. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> That was really interesting, honestly. Do you know how um, the people, like the traveler from North Carolina got that type of, um, that strain of tuberculosis in the first place, if it's so ancient? 
No, it's like a complete mystery. I think that's, that's so like weird. that's like what the researchers were trying to solve when they were um when they were like doing all of this research, but inside they like oh. that was like a happy accident though. Yeah, that was cool. Wow. <laughs> Did he like? Do you think he like visited some like historic? Wait, do you? How long could tuberculosis survive like in just random places? Do you know? No, I'm not sure. No. Cause I was I was thinking like, what if he just visited like a really historic site there and then it spread? Oh or something? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh that's wait, crazy. that could be right. Yeah, I, that's probably not, guys. Guys, don't <laughs> trust me. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you so much, Joshi, for sharing that. That was really yeah. interesting. You're welcome. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and sticking with us and listening to our second episode. We're so excited to be continuing this medical journey with you. And also, make sure you tune into our next episode, which will feature one of you guys, um, our listeners. And also, this episode is kind of special because we're going to be discussing um, the controversial aspects of New Year's resolutions, With uh, obviously with New Year's like approaching. And, and so we also <laughs> think that this episode is going to be really interesting for all of you guys. And if you want to be featured, make sure you fill out the form in our website. Medics off the mic. mic. (laughs) See you in 2023. (laughs) See, guys, see you next year. Good joke, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye, guys.